Hello, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. In this episode, we talk to Scott Peitzer, better known as the Booze Cube, about his understanding of law magic on the plane of Ravnica, specifically in context of the Azorius, Orzov, and Boros guilds. We were super lucky to have Scott on for this podcast, and we got to learn a lot about the way the legal system in the real world works. Without any further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. This episode, we are talking about Ravnica once more. It is return to return to Ravnica season, and we're helping you learn how to be a good tourist to the plane of Ravnica. And one of the things you need to know when you go to any new plane is the laws. You need to understand what to do and what not to do when you get to your new interplanar locality. And so we have a special guest coming on this episode to talk to us about just that. But before we get to the description of the Ravnican legal system, we're going to have all of our hosts and guests introduce themselves. And I want you to tell the listeners what crime you might be caught for if you ever made it to Ravnica. I'm Hobbs Q, and um, mine is pretty simple. I mean, I I'm kind of think of myself as a pretty active person, and I really hate the guild structure, which is going to be something that we're going to get into later on. So I, I think that I am probably going to get arrested for helping lead the guildless in a revolt against the Ravnican guilds. <laughs> I mean, I think pretty simply, it's going to be me alongside Cranko. I'm uh, on Twitter, Alexander Newm. I'm Alex Newman. And mine is much less political and more goofy, because that's kind of my speed. Um, to just just to paint a picture here. So, Hallowed Fountain, the art from Return to Ravnica. It's this wonderful fountain in the middle. It's got these great waterfalls coming down, these, these wonderful sort of curved buildings. I suspect that I, if I found myself on Ravnica, wandering around, I might get arrested trying to make a water slide out of one of those things. <laughs> See, this is why I like working with Alex. He is so pure and just like child, like in a great, beautiful way, because I thought he was going to say public urination. <laughs> but like, that might be mine. <laughs> I'm Scott Peitzer, also known as the uh, Booze Cube on Twitter and uh, creator of the drinking game of the same. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go r- really arcane here and say that I would probably be caught for Barretry, which is uh, a common law offense where it's, uh, you're basically for bringing repeated, repeated litigation for the purposes of profit or harassment. <laughs> So, I mean, I'd obviously be an advocate in Ravnica, but I think I would get a lot of pleasure out of just repeat, just tying up the Boros Legion and Selesnia in court for <laughs> fun and profit. And I'm your host, Joe Redman. You can find me on Twitter at Findhorn. And I think I would get arrested for summoning an entire pack of Thunderheads and commanding them all to scream at the top of their lungs, show me what you got. Oh my gosh. We're mixing Rick and Morty in here too, baby. 
I would probably arrest you for that myself. This uh, this little dabble into the darker side of law is is the other half of what we're talking about today. We're going to talk a little bit about the flavor of Ravnica and its legal system. So the first thing we wanted to sort of jump into is the history of law magic on Ravnica. So what is it about Ravnica that makes it so important to have a magical legal system? Booz, you're our legal expert here, so why don't you take the first crack at that? Sure. Um, I think the most obvious thing is that you have a lot of people living in a relatively small space. So you've got a high population density, which means people are going to be getting, stepping on each other's toes. And, uh, that's, at a fundamental level, what law really needs to be able to do is prevent, get the uh, Hobbesian Leviathan to keep life from being nasty, brutish, and short. Wait, did you just call me brutish and short? <laughs> well, I just called you short. I mean, it's, it's from a flavor perspective and a story perspective, it is the city plane. It's the most sort of social civilization-based plane, I think, that we've seen in Magic the Gathering. It's the most sort of modern in that sense, you know, we have places like Mirrodin or Kaladesh, which are a little more sci-fi-y, but this is the most, I, it seems like it's the closest to our time in a believable sort of way. Does that, that sort of make sense? And so it seems like there, you know, there need to be those same sort of social systems in place. Yeah, it's it's less technologically like the real world, as you were saying, Kaladesh is a little closer to that, but I think in the structure of society, like Scott said, there's a lot more people in Ravnica, so there's bigger cities, and even if the cities look more medieval European than our cities do, the actual population density and thus social fabric of those cities is going to be a lot closer to ours because you need that structure to manage that many people that close together. Let's go to history section here. This is this is all the backstory. We touched on this a little bit in the last episode where we mentioned Alex and I mentioned Azor and the uh, the beginning of the Guild Pact. So, broad terms, the Guild Pact was the social contract. It was the magical social contract that bound all of Ravnica and it was signed by the original 10 Peruns or founders of the guilds and was instituted and sort of put into place by Azor, this Sphinx planeswalker, who we later found out in the Ixalan story is kind of a dick. But so Azor had had that guild pack put into place, and for thousands of years, it was followed to a T. If any guild stepped out of line, the magic of the guild pack that bound the plane pulled them back into line and enacted punishments and repercussions. Eventually, at the uh, festival of the guild pact, I believe it was it was thirty thousandth or something, some ridiculous number, where they celebrated this peace and all the you know joy of having a sustained magical society. One of the Boros. Wojex, the the law enforcement officers, Agris Kos, arrested Sadek, the head of House Demir, exposing House Demir to the public. This was back when they were secret, generating a loophole in the guild pact that the Demir had planned on exploiting and breaking the guild pact. And then all hell broke loose and 
when people weren't bound by this magical law, they started to do whatever they want because they hadn't done that. And it was super nuts for a while until a new guild pack was created by Teza Karlov, one of the Orzov. It was not backed up by metaphysical, you know, magic or anything like that. So guilds took any chance they could to exploit it. But eventually in the return to Ravnica block, Jace Bellerin, through the magic of Azor's maze, or the dragon's maze, the, our favorite set of that block, became the new living guild pack. He was imbued with the magic of the guild pact, which was, there was a failsafe apparently put in by Azor in case the guild pact was ever broken. Well, I mean, to be fair, you always have a failsafe. I mean, I don't, I don't know about your plans, but mine do. <laughs> well, that's a good that's a good point to jump off from, I guess, you know, for for our lawyer in residence here is how possible is it to have a small single event like this sort like the arrest of Zadek and the exposure of the Demir generate a loophole that dissipates an entire system of law? Is that really possible? Yeah, I think that's very possible. And it's actually something in real life that we have to worry about right now. I think the better way to understand the guild pack is not a contract, but rather as a constitution, as a uh, foundational document or magical set of rules or however it's written down. If something goes against, you know, fundamentally against the uh, how that structure is supposed to work, you have a constitutional crisis, which is basically what happened at the end of the Ravnica novels. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, like, let's say today you had the executive branch refuse to just straight up refuse to enforce a judicial decree. We would have the same kind of thing here. Well, and I mean, I think one thing that's kind of interesting, uh, Scott, is, you know, we're we you talk about the constitutional crisis. I mean, we we theoretically have a process in place to amend or to change it because we agreed at some point and I know that we've struggled with this in recent years to understand that, you know, the the Constitution is a living document. It is something that can theoretically be changed. I'm not saying that it should be willy-nilly, but we do have this recognition that 2018 is not the same as the 1700s. Now, we're talking about a guild pact that Azor put into place that— we're talking, did Azor, it's just this interesting thing. Did he actually leave us basically without, you know, is there a way to amend this thing? It basically is like we have a constitutional crisis that the only kind of way to resolve is not actually through the legal system, but through a deus ex machina type thing. And basically Jace is the living guild pack. It's, it's um, Articles of Confederation a little bit. Uh, a system that didn't work and then we had to write an entirely new system that could be changed so that we had something that could work going forward um, his system if it didn't in fact have a way to change it's it's a rigid thing it's like um, skyscrapers are built to move with the wind a little bit they're they're meant to bend just a little so that they don't break in the wind and his system didn't have a way to change you're right over that period of time, people and societies are going to change. They're going to change each other, and they're going to be changed. And if that system of law doesn't have a way to change with it, well, we see it snap, like it did at uh, the end of the Ravnica City of Guilds 
storyline. So bringing this back to kind of where we are on on Ravnica at this point, then why don't we talk a little bit about how those responsibilities were delineated in the in the Guild Pact? So I, I sort of prefaced before, uh, but let's go kind of one by one. The Azorius are the Blue White Guild. What purpose do they fill in society, though, and how does that relate to to the real world for us? Well, the Azorius are they're almost a complete a complete government because you have. You know, the, the tri- sides of the triangle stand for the three columns, which are basically the three branches. You've got the uh, judicial branch in there. You've got the legislative branch that makes the laws. And then they have an arm for uh, enforcing it, so which is the executive. So it's it's almost a complete government into itself, which, you know, creates problems because it's... I mean, I don't know how uh, how much rivalry there is between those three columns, but... You know, it's uh, it's still all Azorius when it comes down to it. Right. I mean, we end up with basically a legal system that, quote unquote, has the checks and balances, but all within the same group in some ways. If we're thinking of the guilds as these separate organizations that are going to come into conflict, it's kind of like basically the Azorius can sit back and kind of be like, yeah, we'll take care of any disputes and all three of our branches agree with each other. Yeah, just, I mean it's uh, just seem it's like a the stable other... system, but it's not exactly a good stable system. I mean, the Azorius, you know, I mean, in all over their flavor text, it's all about uh, keeping things the way they are, you yeah. know, doing nothing. It does seem a very insular governmental system that can be that can be problematic. Yeah, you've got this system where if they really are the only ones making laws, the only ones with the say, the other nine guilds don't seem to have a seat at the table then. I mean, they all have their niche within society, their thing that they get to do. But if it's all regulated by the Azorius. Yeah, I mean, I I see the other guilds more analogous. I mean, in compared to the real world, kind of as executive agencies like uh, the. Uh, the so are is the Department of the Interior or. Uh, <laughs> Golgari is uh, the Department of Agriculture and combined with, you know, waste and management. You know, the interesting thing, though, too, is if you look at it that way, at least in the real world, you have a doctrine of uh, judicial deference, you know, when reasonable to uh, the decision making power of the, the the expertise of an individual agency. And the agency, of course, gets in the real world, gets to make create its own regulations within the confines of the enabling statutes. So theoretically, the Azorius could create some some body, not a, not a guild, but uh, you know some function that needs to be filled, delegated to the Golgari, and they can determine independently within the confines of that directive how to uh, how to actually accomplish it in practice. There's really no way to say declare a law unconstitutional, at least you know without dissolving the guild pact, which apparently is the easiest solution. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so what What I heard was open revolution is really the only yeah. way to go. Or you have to dissolve Chase, right? In, in acid? Like, what? Uh, he's the guild pact, right? Like transitive property. All right. So let's talk about the Orzhov and how they function in the legal system. So how do the Orzhov function in Ravnican justice? Well, the Orzhov are, uh, aside from the whole uh, weird gangster religion thing, the Orzov are the <laughs> advocates, or in other words, the lawyers. I love the fact that the lawyers are 
black white because <laughs> it's just it's so on flavor the adversarial system and the common law system really because common law is you know the, the accretion of doctrine in individual cases with each party pursuing their own interests and butting heads directly and against each other there each one is trying to make a very zealous but one-sided case and let the judge figure out where the cards really lie. I always run into this as somebody who de definitely doesn't identify with black in the color pie myself. The Orzov aren't necessarily unscrupulous. Some are, but the Orzov advocates specifically are, they're just taking the position of their client and leading the case however it makes sense for their client. Is that is that right? Yeah, basically. I mean, you know, the black side of it is in order to get the best law, you've got to have each side arguing as hard as they can in their own selfish position, you know, in, in order to present the judge with the best case to make the best ruling. That's a big part of black's color identity, that each person is the in the best position to look out for themselves and when you extend that into black white black white tends to be very much about the loyalty to the group the loyalty to those that they define as theirs and in, in the case of a lawyer then it's the, the they're very much about what is the best for the person i am representing i am fascinated too by how the Orzov as a group, like you said, I love the I love the term gangster religion, but it, I mean that is what they are. They're a, they're a series of cartels. They're they're all sorts of different mobs basically that all unite under this, and then also sort of have a legitimate front. I mean, it, it's it is basically like the whole Al Capone gang or something, you know, that the legitimate front is is the advocates and the representation in the legal system and some of the, you know, money lending and loaning they do. But then there's all this dark stuff underneath. And so, you know, how do you reconcile that as as somebody who does have personal experience in the legal system? How do you reconcile that representation of of the prosecutors themselves being that directly woven into, I guess, the money of Ravnica's economy as well. Well, I mean, unfortunately, in the real world, access to justice is often a function of how much you can pay for uh, legal fees. And, you know, there's, of course, organizations that do things pro bono. And a lot of the large firms, too, have a actually have pro bono requirements. But, yeah, for the most part, it's, you know, if you are poor, you're going to have a hard time suing a large corporation. My wife, previously at her old job, used to do mass tort, which is basically, you know, you're there, basically they just sued Pfizer and the other, basically they sued Big Pharma for a living. Hmm. And, uh, but you had these, the only way to do it economically was to have these massive consolidated litigations, kind of like a class action, although technically different because class actions don't really work anymore. So you have to have a ton of plaintiffs in order to make enough of an incentive for the attorneys, for good attorneys to take on their case and take on the, you know, on the, especially on the plaintiff side, you have to spend a lot of money in order to uh, just to litigate the case. Um, you know, you could be, you could literally be spending millions and millions of dollars in expert fees. And if you don't win the case, that's not coming back. Are the Orzov more like these? The, the law firms that are going to take on Pfizer and be constantly filing suits, 
or are we talking something that they're more along the lines of like ambulance chasers? I think it's a mixture of the two. I mean, it's kind of like I'd say like when the Orzov's financial interests coincide with the financial interests of a given client, then they're probably more than happy to take on the case. But um, unless there's some advantage in it for them going to the uh, the black side of them, maybe they just give it to the for training to the associate who just graduated from Orzov <laughs> Arbit, um, Advocate School. Well, it does make actually make me think of how Teza handled the drafting of the new guild pact. The new guild pact was brokered by the Orzov, basically the the non magical one prior to Jace being the living guild pact, and that saw the that saw the Orzov take on a much larger role. I think in helping to shape the future of Ravnica and do some of that control that the Azorius had done previously. Teza, I think, saw that opportunity to not only help the greater good, sort of the white element of the Orzov, but also to boost up her own family and her own guild's influence. Does that sort of fit what you're talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like, um, you know, like at my wife's old firm, they do really good work. They're the they're they're the people that actually hold the big pharmaceutical companies to account for their actions when they hurt people. But at the same time, they're not going to take on a case that is not, not going to make them a ton of money. So we talked about some of the mechanics that we get from the Azorius, things like detain, that really do fit okay. with the flavor of their <laughs> their loss side of it. But what's interesting is between the two different Ravnica and Return to Ravnica, the Orzov actually get mechanics that really do not feel on flavor for the lawyers or for the advocates. Well, I mean, you could extort, you know, as a... They may, they may fit other flavor of the guild, too. That might fit more of their banking, more of their... I mean, they are literally called the Orzov Syndicate. Like, right. <laughs> it fits a little little more of that syndicate nature of them, too, I think. I mean, you could it's make like, an argument that the extort is basically, you know, you've got to pay your legal fees. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I do have to ask, too, Scott. So, we, Alex, you bring up a great point that the Orzov's contracts specifically have, almost all of them have riders in them that say, you still owe after death. And they can basically, you know, uh, claim your, your ghost, your spirit, and prevent you from moving on to the afterlife if you still owe a debt and, you know, use you in service. Uh, how... How legal is that, or is there any precedent for that in the real world? That's pretty grim. Well, you know, I've actually had a, uh, I think I've tweeted about this before, is that the law takes a uh, very, it just ignores the undead for some reason. I don't understand why. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions. Like, let's say you turn into a vampire. Can you probate your estate to yourself? Huh. <laughs> and, uh, well, of course, the, in, I mean, in the real world, you know, the undead aside, you do definitely have that sort of thing where you can make creditors can make claims on your estate. And so you do have those those debts then fo literally follow you to the grave. Wow. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I also love the Orzov's uh, contract interpretation. Like one of my favorite flavor text is Executioner's Swing, which is uh, 
The contract, you know, it's the contract specified an appendage for a mixed payment. Read the fine print. The head is an appendage. <laughs> so we now sort of see the landscape of what happens in the courtroom, but somebody's got to enforce it. Somebody has to be out on the streets actually making sure these rules are followed. And so we need to talk about the Boros. They're our third law guild on Ravnica. And actually, until it, you mentioned them, Scott, in our prep, in our show notes, I didn't think of them as law, but they absolutely are. So what do the Boros do on Ravnica to function in the justice system? You know, I think that's a really interesting question, one that I'm not entirely sure because the Azorius themselves have a law enforcement wing. So you've got to assume that the Boros are doing something different than the, in what they're uh, how they're enforcing the law than the Azorius are. And uh, I think it's it's kind of difficult. I mean, they seem like they'd step on each other's toes a lot. I think it would be a s similar to like a federal bureau versus like the FBI versus the more local police forces. It does seem like they're a little more of the paramilitary side of law enforcement as opposed to the simple um, the bailiffs or even your I guess your parking attendant sort of people you know that seems to be a little more of the part and parcel for the azorius or the standard like walk the beat on the street type of person they're all they all the boros seem almost like the swat team that you call in when things get really out of hand i found some interesting flavor text that might kind of help delineate between them and the uh the azorius like on a uh, court street denizen it says uh the boros fight for justice the azorius fight for law Mm. I hold the line between and make sure the people are given both. But it's interesting because the Boros, you know, in uh, Angelic Edict, it says uh, the Boros built a prison in the sky where Azorius statutes couldn't restrict their sense of justice, hmm. which is almost kind of like a black site, I guess. So like the Guantanamo Bay of yeah, uh, we have Gitmo on yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to a real world discussion then. So the, the reason that I kind of brought that up is because we, we are kind of struggling here with the limited information that we do have on who is our police force with boots on the ground versus what is the Boros kind of doing, whether they are our SWAT teams or they are our National Guard. When do they get called in? But it also paints for me in the fact that they could just be our military and in some ways this is going to get very political, but it's going back to what I first saw when we hit Ferguson. One of the first things that I remember about that was the fact that we started seeing that U.S. military equipment was being sold to police forces around the U.S. I mean, we actually had situations where these small towns basically had miniaturized tanks that were being that had been used for the military in combat zones. And I actually saw at that point there was a lot of articles that were coming out by veterans that were commenting on the fact that tactics that were being used by the, the military – I'm sorry, by the police forces were tactics that were actually designed to escalate situations, not de-escalate them. I've been seeing a militarization of our police force throughout the U.S. where, like I said, you have these small towns – making purchases of surplus military gear that's more than any 
police force should need or or I believe really need to have to be able to do their job. And I'm wondering if we're seeing that with the Boros. And it could be that they really are supposed to be the police force. They've just been really militarized. Hmm. I personally have said this as a conspiracy theory. I made a joke about it at the very <laughs> beginning of the cast with me getting arrested for helping the guildless. But it being our third time on Ravnica, you have people that, you know, we know the guilds only make up a certain portion of the populace. And we've now seen them under an original guild pack, a revised guild pack that also has this living planeswalker thing that nobody knows what he is involved with it. I think we are getting close to rioting. I really do. I, I actually would personally love to see the story go in that direction and move away from the guilds or more to what happens to the guilds. Because we've talked about this on previous episodes, especially when we profiled Cranko, that there is a divide between the guilds and the guildless. And if they've been living under Azorius law that they feel that cannot be changed since they control, like Scott was saying, basically all three arms of the government, if the Boros is the military force, but it's also the police force, we're seeing a militarization of it. That's where we're heading. And also, too, the other element of that is the people that you would hire to advocate for you, the advocates of the Orzov. You, if you're guildless, you're just an average Joe, and you probably can't afford the best legal representation, as we were talking about, too. And so sort of while just staying on the boros and how they're reflected in the real world first i do think that is a really important thing that that we need to talk about and that we've seen in our own city all of us are from minneapolis area and i mean just a couple of years ago there were there were police shootings i mean there are police shootings that happen every year but there was a specific police shooting that happened and one of the north minneapolis police department districts was protested outside of not violently not any sort of way and it, it feels awful that i have to i feel like i have to clarify that it was not a you know any sort of you know demands or the public was being disrupted or any sort of thing like that it was people standing outside and camping outside of this precinct demanding to know what happened it was the family of this young man that was shot and killed it was you know friends in the community it was people who who just wanted the police officers uh chest camera video to be released and that was eventually broken up if i remember right and they all blur together unfortunately but that was broken up with tear gas which is you know, that's some 1960s, you know, breaking up the civil rights ha movement type action. You know, there are still marches and civil acts that are broken up by police forces in the in the U.S. today with fire hoses and just these outsized responses. And now I know this isn't exactly your territory, Scott, because you're more in the law legal aspect but since it since they are an element of the legal system that's that's kind of why we're bringing this in to this part of the discussion yeah i mean there's definitely a problem with police accountability unfortunately at the moment it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot that we can do about it i mean you can sue a police department but there's all kinds of immunities that you have to get over and uh 
and privileges too. Like, um, it's just, it's, it's a really tough thing. And, uh, short of a complete overhaul, probably at the federal level, it's, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, you might see it in individual states, but like, for example, Minnesota recently got rid of the horrible practice of, uh, civil forfeitures where an officer can take your property if you're just suspected of a crime. And it doesn't even have to be a reasonable suspicion. They can just take it and then you're, you basically have to prove that, uh, that the property was not being used in the commission of a crime, even if you're, say, acquitted of a crime. It's like that card, uh, was it Render Silent earlier? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basically a lot like that where you don't, there's, you don't really have due process and that's a problem all over the country except for individual states like minnesota that have uh, gotten rid of it where you need say a criminal conviction to uh to seize property but you know unless you're doing it at the federal level it's uh you're not going to have a systemic solution something too that we've seen exploited a fair amount uh in regards to this that does link in the rest of the legal system is the grand juries. I think I can see what you're, where you're getting at. And so the first thing you have to understand is that a grand jury, you, it's not, it's a jury, but it's not for conviction. It's the, if you, it's to generate an indictment and Mm. it's more of an investigative tool Mm. um, because it allows the prosecutor to subpoena witnesses and require them to um to appear and give testimony or present documents or whatever but ultimately the question for the jury is whether there's probable cause here and probable cause is not a high standard which is one of the things that i find so troubling about you know this thin blue line here where uh, you see a lot of police officers get off through a grand jury Right. I think that's been one of the frustrations from an outsider watching. And I'm glad that you're on here, Scott, to talk to us about kind of the fact that this doesn't seem to make sense is to me, I've always been under this assumption of like, we're not even getting to trial. I mean, that's where we were, say, with Ferguson is you're telling us there's not even enough to go to trial. Like there's not even enough to do that. And it it seems from an outsider, this is like a low bar that you should be. It is a low bar. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not to the ground, but it's still a pretty low bar. I mean, you basically just have to have almost a, a facially valid case where it doesn't, you're not looking at the truth of the individual facts so much as whether there are enough facts that if they're believed, you could uh, support each element of the case, of the crime. In what I what I, I imagine is happening in the police in you know in the case with police officers is that uh, you know they're basically police officers acting in the line of duty have a certain amount of leeway, and they're just kind of rather than leaving it to, for the jury at trial to decide, just saying well there's not even enough of that with all with the leeway and I think it expands that leeway beyond what really is reasonable. So if we're thinking about this from even the perspective of, say, the Azorius, I I mean, I've heard it as kind of that problematic thing that you have prosecutors who are having to prosecute the people that they also kind of expect to bring them, you know, to bring in the the criminals. They may reach the right answer, but it's not intuitive with the public sense of justice. Kind of like the conflict between Boros and Azorius, 
where the Boros kind of want to do justice, even if it's outside the law. And the Azorius want absolute law, that, that, right. that the law is infallible in some ways. Right. And I think to have a society function, you have to have something of both, where you, you, need, a, you need flexible laws. Not so flexible that there might as well not exist, but just enough fuzziness that uh, you can maneuver. And, you know, you, the founders intended it to be flexible. I mean, I think it was, uh, I forget if it was Marbury v. Madison or McCulloch v. Maryland, but really early, early, early cases in deciding the scope of the Constitution where they, you know, they just say, it's a Constitution that we're expounding. There's supposed to be a certain vagueness for it to stand the test of time because it has to be able to be expanded and adapt to changing circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it has built into it a mechanism by which you can modify it. Well, even aside from that, I mean, the real modification you see most frequently is through the courts hmm. because the courts are fleshing out, you know, let take a clause like due process. Everyone's entitled to due process. Well, what do you mean by process? And what is due? What, what does that mean? Or, you know, that's where you carve out exceptions. Say, for example, to the First Amendment, the right to free speech is not entirely unlimited. There are categories of speech that are uh, outside of it. The courts have ruled are outside of its scope. Like, for example, fighting words or... Um, Yelling fire in a movie theater. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so what's the... I don't... One thing I really want to know with Jace right now, what happens when he's not on Ravnica. Like, how does Ravnican society Like, does the guild pack rule in... When the Constitution yeah. has left the building? I, 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 believe, <laughs> I believe a day on Ravnica where Jace is not there is just called Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's my understanding based on the recent stories. It seems like he's never actually there. Uh, um, but no, that is an actual... What happens when he dies? Like, well, that, that they is... have to have a new maze? Well... <laughs> Maybe we're going to find out. Yeah, no, that's a serious question that, that hopefully they actually address. Like, and what is his job? I think they talked about it a little bit in Origins, but I, I, I don't recall a whole lot of the details. Like, what does he what does he do aside from paperwork? Or is that literally the job of the Guild Pact, is to just fill out paperwork? Well, I, I think I read somewhere, and I can't point you to its source. I was doing some, uh, some reading today, and I remember seeing something about how Jace can make pronouncements that are then essentially incorporated into the magical framework of the guild pack. So, you know, they they have that metaphysical enforcement. So he can do executive orders. Essentially, but almost like executive amendments. I think we're even further than that. He's basically the pope. I mean, he's like, in, he's, he's technically got divine intervention here. No, maybe we will find out what happens when Jace either inevitably dies or... Is yeah, shirking I, his duty. When he spends, what, weeks on Ixalan without his memories, thus not returning home? Like, some of the other stories, there's some hand-wavy, maybe in between the storylines, he went back to Ravnica to sign some forms, but certainly didn't happen when he was on Ixalan. And that was, what, months? I'm not sure what the timeline was exactly. Although, I suppose, while he's on Ixalan, you could, he definitely has some connection to the... Uh, to Ravnica through to Ravnica Azor. Because he bound Azor yeah. using guild pack magic. Yeah. Yeah. There is something about the 25th Amendment that we got to find out, because what happens when he's incapacitated? You know? It's even worse. Uh, 
Or under mind control. Yeah. Bolas like is what capable if Bolas of that. Takes him over. Is Bolas able then to directly alter the framework of the guild pact? Presumably. Now I have two things to be excited for on Ravnica. <laughs> <laughs> so then just to end on a a lighter note, a, a fun note, let's talk quickly about our favorite cards in magic that show legal effects uh scott you've got a couple that are your particular favorites i think yes definitely uh my all-time favorite is uh remand (laughs) um just the the function and the flavor of it is just a perfect melvin vorthos merging of beauty because so uh I uh, I clerked for a few years in the Court of Appeals here, and uh, so I've remanded a lot of cases. Um, <laughs> and basically, a remand is you know you send something up on appeal, and the appellate court can't decide everything because either you need to uh, send it, you need to send it back down to the trial court for uh, further fact finding, or to rule on something that hadn't been addressed yet but that needs to be addressed in order for the case to proceed or to do the, you know, if the court of appeals decides something, but that just requires further action by the trial court, that's a remand. You're remanding the case back to the trial court. You're sending it back down. And so, you know, function wise, you're doing, you're remanding a spell back to their hand. You're not, you're not deciding it. You're not countering it. You're just sending it back for them to do more with it. (laughs) I think my favorite has to be Azor's Elocutors, which we were also talking about off-air. Uh, and that's simply because it's a card that has the word filibuster counter on it. <laughs> I Any deck that I can play that has filibuster counters, I'm all about. Yeah, I'm going to take one that's... it. It's legal, but it's actually a little bit more prison-based, I guess. Um, so I'm going to go with solitary confinement just because it's always been one of my favorite arts and just this idea that, you know, with the law, you know, being able to force somebody to basically have no contact with the outside world is one of the worst things that I can imagine. Kind of even you're already separate from society and now you're separate from everybody else. Well, it's, I mean, it is a legal thing. I mean, there's actually, it's actually all frequently the subject of eighth amendment lawsuits. I just, at this point, I'm just going to have to declare martial law. Because that's my choice. Um, I was talking to Joe about this beforehand, and and all a lot of these law centric cards not not all, but a lot of them seem to fall into two camps. You either have the counter spells, or you have enchantments. And and martial law is an enchantment, and I I really like the flavor of it is a it, especially talking about law on Ravnica laws that the, that the Azorius can can create and wield uh, an enchantment is an actual permanent thing but it's not a physical object and that is a really well represented in the mechanics of the game I'm going to go with a, a second hit for me, Absolute Law. Because since I brought it up on the uh, flavor text, it actually is a card also from Urza Saga. The ability itself is kind of hilarious because it's just all creatures have protection from red. That's apparently Absolute Law in the world of <laughs> Urza Land. Yeah. But the flavor text is the strength of law is unwavering. It is an iron bar in a world of water. So it busts. Ha, 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 
<laughs> and then it gets dissolved, just like the Guild Pact. <laughs> and eventually Jace. That's our show. You can find the podcast on Twitter at GoblinLorePod or email us any questions, comments, or concerns at GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. Scott Peitzer can be found at the Booze Cube on Twitter. Joe Redeman can be found at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. Hobbs Q can be found at Hobbs Q. And Alex Newman can be found at Alexander New M. The Goblin Lore Podcast is a member of the Geek Therapy Network, which you can find at geektherapy.org or on Twitter at geektherapy. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs> <laughs>